is Samson one of the best known, but at the same time least understood characters of the Bible? I suspect he might be. What a strange combination of faith on the one hand, but hot-headed disobedience Samson really is. It's always curiously reassuring that God is willing to use people who have so many weaknesses in their character. But in doing so, you must remind yourself that this in no way ever excuses willful sinfulness in yourself. In fulfilment of that fantastic promise that Manoah and his wife had received from the Lord in chapter 13, Samson has been conceived and born. And although they clearly are a very godly couple, and even the name they give him, which means sunshine, uh, raises a few eyebrows when you discover that the town directly across the valley from the town of Zora where they live, this other town is a, a centre of pagan sun worship. And, well, maybe his parents were saying, hey everyone, the true sunshine is over here on this side of the valley in the miraculous birth of this little boy. Well, that's, that's just me musing over it. What you must not miss is verse 25 of chapter 13. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon Samson. God is going to empower this one man, Samson, to do that which he normally uses an entire army to do. Just as we think we've worked out how it is that God does things, the kind of people it is that God uses, he introduces Samson to remind us that God really is able to work in any way he pleases. Of course, God will always and only ever work in accordance with his own character and nature, according to his own purposes and promises. But the methods and instruments of his choosing remind us that his ways are indeed far above and beyond our ways. And so to the narrative of chapters 14 and 15 this morning, which will break down into three parts, beginning with the whole of chapter 14. And here we discover not your normal marriage. One of the neighbouring towns, only a few miles away, is Timnah. And one day Samson is there and sets eyes upon, upon this young woman and immediately he is smitten. That's the girl for me. Except she's a Philistine. The nation under whom Israel would be oppressed by God for 40 years, chapter 13, verse 1. Nevertheless, back to mum and dad goes Samson. I've found the one, he says. She is a Philistine, but she's the one. Get her for me to be my wife. It was dad's job to arrange everything. Now we see that Samson has completely disregarded the law of Moses, which forbids them to marry anyone from these Gentile nations that they were living amongst in the land of Canaan. And he shows unbelievable disrespect towards his parents in the way that he speaks to them, especially his father. 
and his parents are understandably distraught in verse 3. Samson, a Philistine? Really? A Philistine, Samson? Plenty of parents have lain awake at night uh, over the issue of who their child wants to marry. And here we are, thousands of years ago, exactly the same for Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. What's wrong with a nice Jewish girl? Surely there is a lovely girl amongst our own people here somewhere. I want her, says Samson. Get her. She is right in my eyes, is literally what Samson says. Quite a character is Samson. In many ways, not necessarily a model son to his parents. And he takes his mum and dad to Timnah in verse 5. And while he's there, and at the time when he must have been alone and on his own, a young lion springs out at him and Samson simply takes hold of it in his bare hands and tears it apart. And then, apparently, as if nothing unusual has happened, uh, it was just an ordinary stroll through a vineyard, and he has a, a chance to sit down and talk with this young lady and becomes even more besotted with her. Well, sometime later, Samson is walking past the place where he had this episode with the lion and he's left its dead body at the side of the path and he sees that some bees have made their home inside the body of the lion and there's honey there. So Samson bends down and scoops them up and, and takes it home. Well, long story short, the marriage is to proceed and the usual week-long wedding feast is arranged. Thirty companions are invited and Samson gets it into his head to provide them with a riddle which has a forfeit attached to it. Solve my riddle by the end of the week. And if you can, I will give each of you a new set of clothes. And the words that he uses in the Hebrew refer to both underwear and outer garments. So we would perhaps today say a new pair of boxers, socks and a and a shirt and suit. But if you can't solve it, each of you gives me a new set of clothes. Well, this is a typical gang of lads. Deal, they say, you're on. Well, there's 30 of us, we've got a few days, we can work this out. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. These have become really famous words, haven't they? Indeed, as many of you probably know, um, if you've got one of these tins in your cupboard at home, uh, the famous Lyle's Golden Syrup, you'll know that right on the front here is a depiction of this story with the body of the lion and the words out of the strong came forth sweetness. Uh, and indeed, Abram Lyle um, had this whole image uh, and all of the design of this uh, registered as his trademark in 1904. And actually, uh, the Guinness Book of Records um, hold this as being the, the longest standing trademark still in use today.
Out of the strong came forth sweetness. Anyway, Lyle's Golden Syrup's got nothing to do with our story, but uh, that's where it comes from, of course. And so this riddle is left with these 30 young men, but try as they might, uh, they just can't get it. And their frustration turns to anger, uh, so much so that they threaten Samson's bride and they threaten her father with death. Nice lads. They, they start to think, this is just a scam, so that he can get 30 sets of new clothes out of us. And his wife's probably in it with him. And so they grab her, tell us the answer. And so she goes sob-storying back to Samson. I've not even told my mum and dad, says Samson. I'm not telling you. Well, she went on and on at him. Samson's going to suffer with a lot of that. And eventually, as the deadline approaches, he tells her that she... Uh, he tells her the answer to the riddle and she passes it on to the 30 young men. Well, Samson, he realises straight away that he's been snitched on by his wife and uses a not very complimentary turn of phrase about her. If you had not ploughed with my heifer, that's not a very nice thing to say, Samson, you, would, you never would have solved it. And now he owes each of them a set of clothes, 30 times over. So he pops down to his nearest Burton's in Ashkelon, but of course he discovers that they've gone into liquidation. So he has another plan instead. He kills 30 men and takes their clothes from them and gives those to this group of 30 young men. And then he simply storms off home. And in his absence, the bride's father marries her off to the best man instead, because the actual wedding ceremony hasn't taken place yet. It's been all, all the preliminary stuff up to that point. Fathers could do that kind of thing back then. What a story this is. You couldn't make it up. What on earth is going on here? Some of you may have noticed that... I failed to mention a couple of sentences here and there. And these phrases that are used change the whole complexion of the story. This apparent chaos isn't chaos at all. God is working in and through the entire narrative. What did we read in verse 4? His father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he, God, was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Remember the promise of chapter 13, verse 5, your son shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. That whole job of delivering Israel from the Philistines is going to take many, many years. It won't be completed till the time of David. But Samuel is going to begin something significant. That Samson is going to begin, begin something significant. And that is what God is doing right now. In a way we never would have anticipated, and unlike anything any of the other judges of Israel have done, 
God is bringing Samson into contact with the Philistines to do what God has in store for him to do. Think about it. Even before all this, God knew when and where a donkey must die and fall to the ground so that just when Samson needs it, its jawbone falls into his hand. Even now, God knows what Samson's final repentant act of faith will be in the temple of Dagon in Gaza. And all of that unfolding story begins with Samson falling for this Philistine girl. God is at work in and through this man, the man that he has appointed, the man who God caused to be born. What do we read in verse 6? The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Then it was that he tore the lion apart. Verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men. Many imagine Samson looking something like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. I'm not so sure, you know. Later on, we'll find the Philistines totally bemused as to where Samson gets his strength from. And that perhaps suggests that he wasn't some giant of a man like Conan the Barbarian with muscles in places that I don't even have places. In these early recollections of Samson's great feats of strength, we have it pointed out to us in no uncertain terms that on all of these occasions, what happens first is that the Spirit of God comes upon him. God gives Samson supernatural strength in order that he might do God's supernatural work. Yes, he has his long hair, but that's just a sign of the vow that he's under before God. God is the source of his strength. And God proves himself to Samson, perhaps in a not dissimilar way to the way that God proved himself to David, so that David was strengthened in his own spirit when he eventually faced Goliath, because David was able to testify of the ways in which God has already enabled him to deal with lions and bears when he's been uh, guarding his father's sheep. We read about that in 1 Samuel 17. And surely we're encouraged to see what the Spirit of God is able to do in a man or in a woman. Spiritually, this is exactly the same for us. God will equip and strengthen all of us for that which he has for us to do. He'll do it for you. He does not leave you to yourself and to your own strength, to your own wisdom and to your own devices. As surely as he came to Samson's aid, when Samson needed it, so the Lord will be your strength and your guide and your shield and your wisdom when you're in need of it. Of course, we must remember that when we read passages like this, this isn't 
a mandate for you and I to live the kind of chaotic, undisciplined and disobedient life that we see in Samson on the pretext that God will somehow be in it, therefore it's all okay. No, we can't be thinking that way. Nevertheless, it is God who is orchestrating all of this. And this is, this is a reason for us not to despair when people who we love do crazy or disappointing things. You must do all within your power to so train and influence the people that you love, your children especially, so that they won't ever do crazy or disappointing things. But when they still do, the scripture reminds us that even there, God can still be at work. And we must be sure to maintain this biblical perspective and not go to pieces, but to continue to trust in the Lord. God is able to have in his hands even a man like Samson with all of his ungodly passions. And God will use him to accomplish his own will and purposes. After all, if God can use pagan nations and pagan kings, he can use an unruly Israelite, even though that doesn't excuse Samson's unruliness. God places unexpected lessons before us in the Bible by the way he uses unexpected people. Until Christ comes onto the page of Scripture, God will never have a perfect or sinless prophet or priest or king over Israel. And it's Christ's sinless perfections and righteousness which set him apart from all who went before him and all who have since followed after him. That strikes us as we read through our Bible. Well, the story continues into chapter 15, where we have this encounter with some fiery foxes in the opening eight verses of the 15th chapter. There was a strange custom, strange to us anyway, in this region of the world. And I believe it still continues in certain Middle Eastern cultures today, where a married woman would remain with her own parents and her husband would not remain with her permanently, but would come and visit for a few days or maybe a week at a time. I can imagine a few women today thinking, what a brilliant idea. This seems to be the, the kind of arrangement that Samson has anticipated as he arrives with his customary gift. Although, of course, today's woman would be less than impressed with not a dozen red roses, but a, a young goat thrust into her arms. Although I can think of a few who'd actually be quite happy with a young goat. The man who Samson thought was his father-in-law announces that because he thought Samson didn't love his daughter, he's actually married her off to the best man. But anyway, surely Samson would actually prefer the much better looking younger sister. Well, again... As we saw in verse 4 of chapter 14, God actually has found an occasion to bring his judgment against the Philistines 
by the hand of Samson, who is absolutely furious at what this man has done. But the fact that God is in this, finding occasions to use Samson to judge the Philistines, this is something that you must keep in view throughout all of these verses, because this is what God is really doing. The Hebrew word translated as foxes could just as equally be applied to jackals, could be either, so we're not quite sure. Uh, most Bible translations do go for foxes, but it could have been jackals. And Samson sends 150 pairs of these animals with flaming torches attached to their tails to run through all of the Philistines' crops and utterly destroy them. Not a favourite story for the animal lover, I'll admit, but evidently extremely effective. And one of the reasons that I think we have this recorded is that it makes sure that we don't lose sight of the kind of people that the Philistines were, as at the end of verse 6, as a result of what Samson has done, the girl who Samson first saw and fell in love with and her father are then blamed and burned to death. Now, of course, it is true that many in Israel were put to death as part of their criminal justice system. And you might be tempted to think, well, what's the difference really? Well, I want to suggest there's a very significant difference because there are several important points of reference in that phrase, criminal justice system. Criminal, that means proven lawbreakers. Justice, that means punishments which fit the crime and system, everything being conducted in an orderly fashion with integrity and with due diligence and with a court and with witnesses and people who can make a proper judgment of what's gone on. In verse 6, this is just the violent retribu retribution of an outraged mob. Samson in verse 7 is rightly outraged and he brings a great slaughter upon the Philistines we read because the actions of Samson are God's righteous judgment against their sin. No one's quite sure what to make of the phrase attacked them hip and thigh. Is it maybe a description of how it was he actually attacked them? Is it just a, a colloquial turn of phrase not too dissimilar from the way that we might talk about it's raining cats and dogs. He attacked them hip and thigh. Well, we're not quite sure. Whatever it was, it's clearly meant to convey the indisputable result of Samson's actions. Where previously God has used the armies of Israel to do this kind of work, God in these chapters is using just one man just because God can. And then as the chapter continues, we have the second episode in this chapter, which we, we might like to title Jawbone Hill, from verse 9 to the end. The place where this staggering event took place became known as Ramath-Lehi, which literally means height of a jawbone. 
Now we can think of the word height in this way. In Derbyshire, there's a hill called the Heights of Abraham. And some of you who are old enough will recall the Golan Heights to the east of the River Jordan. They featured prominently during and following the six-day war between Israel and Syria in the 1960s. Uh, The Heights, uh, that word Heights being used as, as a title and a reference to a high place. Height of a jawbone is the name given to the hill. Dale Ralph Davis, probably correctly, suggests that today we would simply call it Jawbone Hill. And there Samson hides in a cleft in a well-known rock which goes by the name of Etam. And while he's there, the Philistines gather against the people of Judah who live in that region. And the people of Judah ask the Philistines what their gripe is, verse 10. Well, the Philistines tell them they've come to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to them. Well, the people of Judah decide that if their issue is only with Samson, let's give them Samson and then we'll be okay. The people of Judah act treacherously towards Samson. 3,000 of their men came to him. Presumably they thought it would take at least 3,000 of them to be able to take hold of him. What on earth do you think you're doing? Stirring up all of this trouble with, of all people, the Philistines. Well, what did we read? Samson says, as they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, we've come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. They said, no, we won't, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand. We won't kill you, but we're going to do that. And so they bind him with two new ropes. They bring him out up from the rock and they bring him to Lehi, where the Philistines come shouting against him. But then we read, the spirit of the Lord again comes mightily upon Samson The ropes that are on his arms binding him, they become like flax that is burned with fire. They become, it's like it's just ash around his wrists and his bonds break loose from his hands. He finds the fresh jawbone of a donkey. He reaches out his his hand and takes it. With it, he kills a thousand men. God has given them a deliverer. And yet Judah are happy to disown him and hand him over to the evil ones who rule over them. Mm. That sounds familiar. Where, where, Where have we read that before? The Lord Jesus will be disowned by his own and given over to their own enemies. This is a dark day for Israel. They relinquish everything to their enemies in order to save their own necks and live a comfortable life. Let's let them have Samson if it means they'll not trouble us. I wonder, how would you respond if one day our enemies require our lives of us? But in all of this, don't lose sight of something wonderful. 
what is unfolding in the story of Samson is that every time it seems as if, as if the Philistines have got the upper hand, God outwits and outsmarts them through his servant, Samson. The Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon Samson. On this occasion, the ropes break as easily as if they're burned to ash. There just happens to be a fresh jawbone of a donkey to hand. And for a man who is held in God's hand, that's all Samson needs to slay a thousand men and one thousand Philistines lie dead. They've come against Samson with swords and shields. What does he have? Just a jawbone. Just 300 men for Gideon. Just a stone and a sling for David. Just one sentence from Elijah. And the fire will fall from heaven. Just five barley loaves and two small fish. And thousands of people will be filled to the point where they can't eat another mouthful. Just one wooden cross for the greatest victory that this world has ever known. <laughs> Just. God delights in using that which the world considers weak and worthless and which the world despises. God delights in thwarting the works of darkness by means of those things which, from a human perspective, simply should not be able to achieve so much. But if it is God's doing, it can achieve whatever God wants it to achieve. Just as it seems that the forces of darkness which oppose God and his people have gained the upper hand, God moves and with such ease disposes of them. And at the centre of it all, as we read through the narrative of the Bible, at the centre of it all is a baby born in poverty in Bethlehem with not even a cradle to sleep in. A carpenter from the back end of nowhere, Nazareth. A man who would never marry, never have any children, not even have a home of his own. A man executed with the vilest of criminals on either side of him, buried in a, in a borrowed tomb. Who? Him? Him? The saviour of the world? We take a little look at Samson. We discover that God has always been using the most unlikely things in the lives of the most unlikely people in order to accomplish the most unlikely victories. And God can, and God does, because he is God. And he does it most wonderfully and most supremely 
through the man who is God. <laughs> Imagine that, a man who turns out to be God. It's for such a glorious message that the exploits of Samson took place and are recorded. See how God works. See what God uses. See what wickedness God destroys. See how nothing stands in God's way. These are the lessons that we're learning in the Old Testament to prepare us for the, the arrival of Christ. See what victory God can bring when seemingly all is hopeless. It never felt more hopeless for the disciples on the night that Christ was betrayed and on, a, on the day of his death. Perhaps you, you look at Samson and you, you think, what a foolish man for God to choose to use. And yet God used him to confound the Philistines. And the pinnacle of all of this, as, as the story of the Bible opens up, the pinnacle of it all is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God takes the foolishness of the cross. He takes the foolishness of the gospel. He takes the foolishness of preaching. And the strong are overpowered by that which they thought was weak. And the wise are left bewildered by that which they thought was foolish. And the dead are raised, the guilty are pardoned, and the captives are freed. Sin and death are defeated, and the greatest victory the world has known is accomplished. This has always been God's way. And today, you may experience God's saving power. The Spirit of the Lord is still coming upon men and women. And he does it mightily. So mightily, as we were reminded last Sunday afternoon, that those who wanted nothing to do with God are drawn to him. And they turn to him by faith. And they turn to Christ. Have you 